Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, September the 19th, and this week we will begin to, uh, to start a, a series on looking at First and Second Thessalonians. Um, so we're going to jump in with that, we're looking today at chapter 1, <coughs> verses 1 through 10 of First Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the, th- of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father you, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. We, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Thessalonian letters of Paul were written to a young church that was situated in a very extremely dangerous world. Within roughly 20 years of their writing, the whole of the ancient East was engulfed in warfare and rebellion. In 70 AD, the armies of Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and following a, a really long and bloody siege, the city was overrun, the temple destroyed, and the Jews were taken captive. The movements that culminated in these events had had already begun when this first letter was written. So it is clear that the the Thessalonian Christians were facing extremely perilous times. Today, we too are a bit of a world in crisis, are we not? A little nervous, a, a jittery healthcare system, a growing sense of cynicism and distrust of the entire political process, an increase in mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. We tinker with our genetic makeup, all pointing to frightening crisis looming on the horizon of our times. And add to this the now familiar threat of, uh, that, that are always among us of poverty, of racial tensions, the spread of famine in many countries, and the ever-present threat of, of just plain war is clear that we too are living in a world of crisis. Way back in 1972, almost 50 years ago, a group of international industrial leaders and thinkers called the Club of Rome suggested six proposals that humanity must put into effect if we are to survive on this planet. The very first one, very significant proposal was this. The survival of the planet necessitates new forms of thinking that will lead to a fundamental revision of human behavior and by implication of the entire fabric of present-day society. Basically what's happened is this group of folks, whether they realize it or not, have just defined sin nature. 
That simply says that if we cannot discover how to change people, there's no hope for saving the world from ultimate collapse. In the words of Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. There's no way out unless society can find a means of fundamentally changing human beings. And right here, then, is the glory of the gospel because the gospel changes people. The gospel changes men and women. Paul's letters to the young church at Thessalonica were written because people were there had found in this good news about Jesus a way to be changed in and of themselves. And the focus and purpose of their lives had been drastically altered and redone. And this is what these letters clearly reflect. Paul himself had founded this church in Thessalonica. It is today this bustling center in, of northern Greece, and it is one of the few New Testament cities that still flourishes. The, the ancient gate through which Paul entered the city is still standing. It spanned the, the, the Ignatian Way and the, Rome, the Roman road which ran from the Adriatic to the Bosphorus. And after Paul and his friends had been treated shamefully in Philippi, they, they journeyed on some 50 miles west to Thessalonica. Paul remained there at least three weeks and more than likely longer, but he was able to minister in the synagogue for only three Sabbaths, three weeks. And the Jews of the city became so enraged by his teaching about Jesus that they created a riot, took Paul's host Jason captive, and holding him responsible for the Apostle Paul's behavior, then Paul left the city, traveling south to Berea, and began to preach there again. And the Jews from Thessalonica, however, followed him, creating another uprising in Berea. And finally, Paul was sent on alone into Athens, and he remained a short time there and then went on to Corinth. And it was from that city in the year 50 or maybe 51 AD that he addressed this letter to the new believers in Thessalonica, only a few weeks old, babes in the faith in Christ. And here is his introduction to them. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one through three, reading from the NIV. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians faith. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul gives a double address, address excuse me, for the church. One, uh, one geographical, the other spiritual. They lived in Thessalonica, but they also found in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two addresses of, of the two. That address is the more important one. That's always the more important one. For the follower of Christ, for the believer, that is our main identity. Then our physical address, whatever it may be. Paul will stress this truth throughout the letter. Paul is continually thankful in prayer for these believers for three things, their faith, their hope, or excuse me, their faith, their love, and their hope. In the New Testament, those are always listed as fundamental characteristics of those who have come into a relationship with Jesus. And we read at the close of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, "Now and now abide faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. These three qualities, Paul says, well, they're never going to end. But specifically, as we see here, it's not merely faith, hope, and love. It is, first of all, faith which works. Secondly, a love which labors. And thir thirdly, a hope which endures, which lasts. 
So Paul puts it that way so that we may see these as the great motives, the driving factors of the Christian life. If we have true faith, if we have love, in other words, born of the Spirit, and if we have hope in the coming of Christ, we will be motivated to live as we should today. That's the point he's making. And we will see this throughout this letter. This opening section provides a, a glimpse of the working of Paul's mind. He has this an amazing ability to summarize many things in a single verse and then to amplify them again and again in steps which are, which are easy to follow. And that's what we have here. These phrases, the, the work of faith, the labor of love, the persistence of hope, constitute basically an outline of chapter 1. The work of faith is explained in verses 4 through 5. In verse 9, the, the labor of love is described in the latter part of verse 5 through verses 6, 7, and 8. And then the persistence of endurance is found in verse 10. So what is this work of faith that Paul speaks of? He sums it up himself in verse 9. And then he speaks of how the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That is faith at work. Faith is not merely belief. It is something that changes us. Faith makes us turn from what is wrong to what is right, from dark and hurtful things to right and true and healthy things. And especially faith will turn us from the worship of idols to the one true God. And notice the direction of this action to God from idols. It's not put the other way around. We do not leave our idols for some reason and then painfully try to find God. What happens is that we discover something of the beauty, the glory, the greatness of God, and seeing that and wanting that, we are willing to then forsake and leave behind the cheap and tawdry things that we have been trying to satisfy ourselves with. We are surrounded with idol worship. A foreigner who visited here was asked on their return home whether Americans worshipped idols. Yes, they do, they reported. They have three of them. In the winter, they worship a fat man in a red suit. In the spring, they worship a rabbit. And in the fall, they sacrifice a turkey. <laughs> we laugh at that. But, but these are not true idols. They, they're myths and legends, and for the most part, except for the turkey, that is. Many, many of us would, would label entertainment. In other words, Netflix, Amazon Prime, YouTube, etc., as idols. In other words, I spend far too long glued to those platforms, staring at them and in, in, in ingesting them, which feeds all types of ideas and emotions into my mind. But I don't think that they're idols either. They are rather an altar on which are spread offerings to the sacrifices of the great God and idol of self. You see, these things pander to my lust for comfort and entertainment. It lures me to think always of myself, of my own comfort, of my own pleasure, of my own fear or boredom or desire to be thrilled or scared by watching some spectacular, spectacular, spectacular event, excuse me. In short, <clears throat> it encourages us to focus on myself. It encourages us to focus on self. That is an idol. The book, The Habits of the Heart, by a group of psychologists, develops this, the thesis that entertainment causes Americans to forget how to serve. Jesus said that he came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give himself, give himself a, a ransom. 
And that's where true richness and fulfillment come from. When we, be, when we demand to be ministered to, to always have something stirring our senses, the end is loneliness, emptiness, and ultimately despair. And the proof of that is visible everywhere. What will turn us from this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 4 through 5, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. That's how people are changed. Idols are cast aside and a new life begins. It involves a couple of factors, the election and the calling of God. It begins with election. We know, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Some translations. That first thing, beloved by God, brothers and sisters, loved by God. Everything starts with God's love for us. The world at large thinks of God as some perpetually angry person with them, but God does not look at us that way. The truth is found in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God sees us as, as victims, as deluded and deceived, and, and alluring philosophies have throttled our love and captivated and gripped our minds. Almost in total ignorance, we pursue, pursue these things that destroy us. Although we never intended to do so, we have already seriously messed up our lives. But then we learn the incredible truth that God loves us, that he gave his only son for us. It is in the cross that we see the love of God displayed. Paul says it in Romans, God has condemned, has commended his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. It's also in the scripture that we learn that he has chosen us. So how do we know that God chose us out of the millions who have lived on the earth? How do we know that? Well, the answer is we begin to be drawn toward God, to sense a desire for him. The calling of God by the means of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit awakens this, this hunger inside. And if we're longing to be different, if we want to be more than we are now, we've tried to change and we can't, but we want to change. We find the words of the gospel, the music of Christians attractive. We are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no one can come to me except by my Father drawing him. And when the, when the good news came to Thessalonica, People began to feel inside themselves a desire to have this Jesus, this Jesus who would make such a tremendous change in their lives. And they responded to love. And so it, they revealed then that they were the elect of God. Paul goes on to detail the steps necessary to God's call. First of all, our gospel came to you in word. The scriptures were preached. The truth was declared. Paul spoke to them about the promises of God in the Old Testament. The book of Acts records his preaching in the city of Berea. And these Bereans were more noble, more, more open than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with readiness of heart and searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Acts 17, 11. They studied the scripture and, and coined the phrase that we throw around in church, in church circles of the Berean principle. In other words, don't take my word for it. Look for yourself at the word of God. Investigate it. The second factor in God's call is the power of God. The, the gospel came in power. It is real. It is compelling, gripping. The gospel has the ability to compel because it's not just legend or myth. 
Christmas is much more than a beautiful story. It speaks of very real events. Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. The shepherds did in fact come. The angels sang great promises of hope. A flaming star did light up the heavens in all kinds of glory. All of this actually happened. Jesus did live. He moved among men. He died a criminal's death on a cross. He was raised from the dead. All of this marks the power of the gospel. And when the Thessalonians believed, they, they sensed the power of it in their heart, and they were changed. They were different. Also, Paul says that the gospel came by the Holy Spirit. Behind the power was the reality of God himself. His spirit could touch the human spirit. He could actually minister to the deepest needs in human lives. And the spirit of God fills the human spirit and begins to minister to our minds and our hearts from within, opening them to understand these events. And finally, the gospel came with full conviction. It moved the wills of the Thessalonians. They acted. They did something about it. They yielded their lives to God. And Jesus says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door, the door of the heart, and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, feels that desire, and will open the door, invite me to come in, Jesus says, I will come in to him and live with him and he with me. And this is what happened in Thessalonica. That is the work of faith. And until we've actually received Jesus... We have not exercised faith. We can believe the story to be true, but until it moves us to receive the Lord, we have not exercised faith. And the labor of love, which Paul describes, is amplified beginning in the last part of verse 5, verses 5 through 9. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you and for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That describes love at work. It involves three specific steps. And, and here's the first sign of love at work. It changed the attitude of the Thessalonians toward their afflictions. Instead of wearisome complaint, there was, one, joy inspired by the Spirit. They were going through pain. They were ostracized at their work, hounded out of their homes, arrested and put into prison for their newfound faith. But, but... Paul says they had learned to see these afflictions in a new way. The result was joy, joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were responding to God's love by loving him in return and welcoming the opportunities to bear suffering for his name's sake. Am I willing to do the same? Jesus taught us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God. But there is always something before that, something that I think we often overlook. God asks us to love him only because he first loved us. Then he gives opportunities. He gives trial, pressure, hardship, affliction to allow me to see for myself what kind of a solution that he can work out. Something that's undeniable so that I don't rely on myself and my own craftiness. And that's what Paul describes. The Thessalonians 
stopped complaining and started rejoicing. The Thessalonians stopped complaining and started rejoicing. The Thessalonians stopped complaining and started rejoicing. We must understand that afflictions give us a chance to demonstrate how God can sustain us and show his work in our lives. These Christians were rejoicing in their afflictions. That was part of their labor of love. The second mark of love's labor was that they shared the good news throughout Macedonia and Achaia. They simply shared with their neighbors and friends what God had done in their lives. They explained the new joy and the new peace that had come into their hearts. And then when their, fr- their friends began to ask questions about what had happened, they, they invited them over and shared from the scriptures what their faith was all about through the quiet, almost invisible network of what we would call home or small group Bible studies. They shared the good news silently without fanfare the gospel spread throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. The entire countryside was stirred by what was happening in people's lives. In Thessalonica, the city fathers described Paul and his friends by saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come to our city as well. That is the way the good news is spread. And then the third activity by which labor's love, the labor of love was evident among the Thessalonian believers was the way they displayed a daily trust in God's care. Our faith in God has gone, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we do not need to say anything, Paul says. They believed that God was their father who would take care of them no matter what happened. And that simple faith had become very evident in their lives. We are to believe that God cares for us, that he is a loving, heavenly father. And he has a thousand and one ways of meeting our needs, but he hardly ever does the same thing twice. The unchangeable fact is that God loves us. We belong to him. The Thessalonians demonstrated that so effectively that their faith had been reported everywhere. And these people had an invisible means of support, a resource that others knew Nothing about, but the fact of it was evident in their confident behavior. And that brings us to the last, to the endurance of hope, referred to in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. A striking feature about the Thessalonian letters is that each chapter in both letters ends with a reference to the coming of the Lord. At Christmas during Advent, we look back to his first coming. But in the early church, there is very little mention of that. There are references to it. They rejoiced in it, and it's right to celebrate it. But for them, for the early church, they believed that he was coming again, and their hope lay in that. They believed what the angels had said to the disciples at the Mount of Olives. This same Jesus, whom you see going into heaven, shall come in like manner, Acts 1.11. It was the ever-present hope of the early church, and that hope became the dominant theme of those Thessalonian uh, letters. This verse looks backward to the resurrection, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. That fact was their answer to the threat of personal death. That, that, that's the answer. Enough said. I'm not worried about personal death. Why? Because Jesus 
whom God raised from the dead. This was their ground of confidence for victory over death. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also, John 14, 19. And I believe the scriptures that teach that every believer at his or her death is caught up in the return of Jesus. That, that then for each of us, we become part of that great eternal event, which, which later will come crashing into time. When is Jesus coming? That's, that's a question we frequently hear, right? And then we certainly hear a lot of people that tell us they know the answer. But the answer, of course, is that he is no further away from that than our own death. We, not, we, we may not be here tomorrow, and if that is so, for us, then Jesus has in fact come. The return of Christ is accomplished. Jesus promised, if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. This marvelous promise is clearly stated in the 14th chapter of John's gospel. But verse 10 not only looks backward to the resurrection, where we see our victory over death is assured, but it also looks forward to a time that Paul calls the wrath to come now, that's not hell. He's not talking about the fact that Christians are delivered from hell. John 5, 24 records the words of Jesus. He that hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but be passed from death unto life. The Thessalonians knew that already. They had learned from Paul that they would not come into that judgment. But here he's talking about a coming wrath. The use of the present tense indicates that it is something Yet in the future, Jesus, he says, would also deliver them from that wrath. In the Old Testament, this period is called the terrible day of the Lord. It is the time when God's judgments will rain down on the earth. And Jesus himself described it as the great tribulation, which is which has not been since the creation of the world, nor ever will be. Matthew 24, 21. That time is ahead. It was for them and it is still for us. But throughout these letters, we learn that God has a plan to deliver his own from that wrath to come. Christians will have victory over the approaching crisis, crises of the world. But more than the certainty of heaven or the escape from the agony of living is the promise is that he who comes even now rules in the affairs of men. Intertwined with the promise of John 14 that Jesus would come again is the promise that he will come to live with us now. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and make my home in your heart now. John 14 and uh, 18 and 23. The wonderful paradox that Christians possess is that though the kingdom of Christ is yet coming, when Jesus will return to the earth, he is already here with us now. It is the yet and the not yet. He is leading us, fulfilling us, ministering to us, guarding us, even now, ruling in the affairs of men. The question this raises is, what does this mean to us now? Well, as believers, as disciples and followers of Jesus, we have no business to be discouraged, defeated, or in despair. We must not forget these truths. But here in troubled Thessalonica, those truths were to be living, vital, and fragrant in the hearts of those believers. Surely God is calling us back to this again in our moment of darkness in history. I want to conclude with Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and God bless.